1: You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally, to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. Take a hundred days of shooting, add 95 scripted locations, 460 script pages. Six states, 125 speaking roles, a year away from home. 25 years ago, it all adds up to the miniseries of Stephen King's epic novel, The Stand. It's hard to believe that this is the 25th anniversary of the premiere of The Stand miniseries on ABC. Before making The Stand, my work had been on a very intimate scale, with budgets that were less than opulent. But this was an enormous canvas to fill. Eight hours spread over four nights in one week. It was not my first project with Stephen King. It followed Sleepwalkers, which was a very different kind of movie. And a big part of my career has been devoted to bringing King's stories to the screen, large and small. The Stand miniseries remains, to this day, King's most popular novel ever. And the opportunity to direct it from a script by the author himself was an intimidating one. It would be incredibly easy to fuck it up. But nothing ventured, nothing gained. We spent a huge part of our lives pushing that boat up the mountain, and it turned out to be a huge rating success. Stephen King has a voice that is completely his own, but it's a voice that resonates across generations, genres, and tastes. His is a dark imagination, but it's grounded in a deep and emotional humanity. His characters are people we know. They are us. I've often said that King's stories are not about the monsters in the closet. They are about the people who live in the house with the monsters in the closet. It's a real-world kind of horror, which to me is the very best kind. I've been lucky enough to work with King on several projects and hope to do several more. Having Stephen King on your set is a joyful experience. He's a cheerleader and gives his full support. The Stand was by far the biggest project I've ever worked on and by far my most successful. And I could not be happier to be celebrating the quarter century anniversary with the author himself right after this. Fangoria Magazine is back and better than ever in a deluxe 100 page quarterly edition. Each issue includes set visits, deep dives, new discoveries, and minimal ads, all printed on collectible grade paper stock that reimagines the classic magazine for a 2019 audience. You'll see familiar names like Michael Gingold and Tony Timpone, and you'll see bylines that will leave your jaw on the floor, like Barbara Crampton. And the best part, it's print only, just like the old days. Go to Fangoria.com to subscribe today. This episode of Postmortem is sponsored by Shudder. AMC Network's Shudder is a premium streaming video service, super-serving fans of all degrees with the best selection of horror and thrillers. Shudder's irrepressible and thriving community revels in all things provocative, evocative, and dangerous. From bantering with Shudder on social media and contributing fantastic, irreverent reviews, to relishing in members-only perks, such as exclusive releases and VIP movie screenings, Shudder believes there is safety in numbers. You can stream great thrillers, horror, and suspense for $4.99 a month or $49.99 a year. Shudder has the largest, fastest-growing, human-curated selection of thrilling and dangerous entertainment. You could call it the Netflix for horror. There are new spine-tingling thrillers, shocking horrors, and edge-of-your-seat suspense added weekly. Shudder has a unique collection of exclusive and original films and series, horror classics, and blockbuster hits. You'll have unlimited access to stream ad-free on all your favorite devices, including iPhone, iPad, Apple TV, Xbox One, Amazon Fire TV, Google Chromecast, Roku, and all your Android devices. One of my favorites is friend of the podcast, Joe Bob Briggs, goes back to the drive-in, bringing you uncensored drive-in classics and his absolutely inimitable presentation of all things horrific, campy, and cheesy. As a special treat for postmortem listeners, Shudder is offering a full 30-day free trial subscription rather than their usual 7-day offer. Just go to Shudder.com and use the promotional code POSTMORTEM. That's Shudder.com, promotional code POSTMORTEM. Here's something I'm really proud to announce. Coming to theaters and on-demand June 21st, Nightmare Cinema brings together five masters of horror—and I say this humbly because I'm one of the five filmmakers included—telling bone-chilling stories to keep your summer scary. The film critics are calling it a surreal slip down a rabbit hole to hell and gruesome fun. From the teams at Cranked Up Films and Shudder, as well as my own company, Nice Guy Productions, don't miss Nightmare Cinema on June 21st. Visit crankedupfilms.com slash nightmarecinema for more information. This is an anthology film where we gathered together five filmmakers from around the world. There's Joe Dante, who, of course, did Howling and, the, and Gremlins and many other classics. Uh, Alejandro Brugues from Cuba, who did Juan of the Dead. Ryuhei Kitamura from Japan, who did Clive Barker's Midnight Meat Train and Versus, among others. And the Brit, David Slade, who did 30 Days of Night and Hard Candy, as well as the pilots and episodes of Hannibal and Black Mirror. Just really great filmmakers, and I'm really proud of the company I'm keeping in this film. Additionally, Shudder is giving our listeners a free 30-day trial. Use the promo code NIGHTMARE2019 at checkout. And we'll see you there. Before we begin, I just want to let you know that because our conversation is being held over Skype, we may not have the uh, highest quality that we usually do in the studio here. But I think you'll agree that it's worth it. So let's just dive in. You know, at the time that The Stand was written as a book, it was a time of great political upheaval, and The Stand seems to reflect a lot of that. Tell me a little about the social and political climate at the time you wrote the book.
2: Well, let me see. We're talking about uh, trying to think when I actually worked on it. I would have been, uh, it would have been around 1975 or 1976, so we're Nixon at the time. And, uh, you know, basically, there were. Oh, sorry, there, I, I'm I'm having to get closer to the mic. Uh, we were living with a, uh, a farrago of lies, if you will. There were a lot of things going on. Uh, was I a crook? No, I wasn't a crook. Uh, what about uh, were we ever bombing in Laos and Cambodia? Oh, no, we wouldn't do that because, you know, and it all turned out to be bullshit i don't know if i can say that or not
1: of course you can
2: i said bullshit there it was i called bullshit on on nixon but at the same time uh that i was playing with this idea for the book um there was a chemical spill in utah and uh a bunch of canisters just dropped off the back of a truck and they broke open and they killed a bunch of sheep and uh people said later, uh, scientists said that if the wind had gone the other way, Salt Lake City was right there. And uh, around that same time, um, I was in Colorado, and uh, there was a Bible shouting uh, radio station in Arvada. And uh, the guy preached this this sermon one day about, once in every generation, the plague shall come among them. Mm. And I kind of connected that with the chemical spill in Utah. And I was also thinking about a wonderful novel from the 50s called Earth of by George Stewart, I think it was. And I thought to myself, you know, this would make a hell of a book. And uh, one of the things that's in the background of that book, Nick, is the idea that the military and the politicians would continue to lie about this, even after the thing was out of control. So, because that seemed to me to be their default position. And based on what's going on in the United States right now, I would say it's still the default position.
1: So this was something kind of new to you. Um, Your books before had been much more intimate and on a a smaller scale. This is intimate, but on a huge scale, on a Tolkienian scale, if you will. Um, And so... What was, uh, were you looking to do an epic as opposed to something a, a little more smaller scale like you had been?
2: No, but I could because I had some money. Uh, <laughs> I wasn't I was stuck anymore in the situation where, you know, I was like, one eye was on the typewriter because that's what we used back in those antique days But one I was on the typewriter and whatever I was working on, and the other eye was on the bank balance, the checking account, uh, the bills for the kids' dental and the camp and everything else. So, you know, there was, and I grew up in a situation where um, I didn't have a lot, so that I worried about money. I think probably I worried about money longer than I absolutely had to, but maybe that was a good thing. But I'll tell you what really happened. Um, and it's kind of ties in with Under the Dome, which was another long, long book. What got me excited was I thought about the plague novel, and I said, uh, this is this is going to be great, but how do you tell a novel like that? So I played with that because structure is a big deal for me. Uh, structure is, I don't believe in plot. I think plot's a, uh, it's the crutch of writers that, Don't know how to just let go and let the story tell itself. But structure is important to me. And then I thought one day, I sat down with a a pad of paper like this. And I said, if I got a pen here, I said to myself, nobody will see this because they'll just hear it. But that's okay. I'll describe it as I go along. I said, here is Stu Redman. Can you see that dot?
1: Yep, yep.
2: I said, here's Stu Redman. That's where I want to start, this guy down in Texas. And then I want to go to somebody else. I want to go to Fran Goldsmith in Maine. And then I want to go back to Stu Redman. So that I started to do a pyramid. And I said to myself, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to add a character to every chapter. Oh, wow every one is is so that we start to get a wider and wider view you know you think of being a film director having a close-up and then you sort of widen out widen out widen out until you see everybody that's on stage so that's kind of what i did (laughs) until i got 15 or 16 characters and then i said this is getting too big. This is unwieldy. And I almost uh, ended the book right there. I almost left it in a drawer because I said, I don't know what to do with all these people. I've spread the thing too wide. And then I thought, well, there's a thing that uh, Raymond Chandler said in The Simple Art of Murder. He said, if you don't know what to do next, bring on the man with a gun. And I thought to myself, This was, I can remember very clearly, I was walking on a dirt road in Maine and I said, it's going to be a bomb and I'm going to blow up a lot of these people and it's going to simplify everything. And it did.
1: Now, do you do much in in your process? Do you outline a lot? Do you uh, do a schematic? What I've seen when you're working, like when we were doing The Shining, you were writing The Green Mile and you seem to just sit down and attack it and dive in, as opposed to being uh, very sketched out in advance. With something as big as The Stand, did you do a lot of of outlining first?
2: No, I didn't have any outline at all. I just went where the story took me. You wait a minute, and I will show you my idea of an outline. Okay. (laughs) I've got a book coming out in the fall. It's called uh, The Institute. and. Mm -hmm. It's it's a complex book. It has a lot of moving parts in it, and it has a lot of characters, and it has differing timelines and different places in the country. And I was trying to make all this fit together. But the main thing was the institute where these children uh, are being kept prisoner because, well, I I could tell you that, but then I'd have to kill you. <laughs> so, I want to live. Right now, I want you to live. So. <clears throat> The Institute is this place, and it's got front half, and it's got back half. And so when the kids go to back half, it's like the Roach Motel. You know, they check in the back half, but they don't check out. <laughs> so I had to kind of draw a map of the Institute. And that kind of served as a real-world touch point or something. But beyond that, no, I don't really
1: outline it at all. So you trust your intuition as a writer.
2: Yeah, and sometimes, sometimes you drive off a cliff. Uh, but a lot of times you find things that just surprise and, and delight you completely. Now, The Green Mile was, uh, when I had the idea for that book, you know, I get a lot of my ideas. I'll be lying in bed at night and uh, I'll tell myself a story. Well, I don't have mom and dad. Tell me the story anymore, so I have to tell them to myself. And when I was going to sleep, I got this image of this huge African American guy in a prison who was pushing a cart full of snacks and uh, little meals, and he was going to be executed. And uh, then he found this mouse and he trained it. And that wasn't right, but it was the the way that it started, anyway, so uh, I started to write the story, and it was going pretty well, and then one of my agents came along and said, have you ever thought about Dickens publishing a novel in parts?" and I thought, well, if I do this, either the thing will get finished, or I will just totally screw myself, (laughs) you know, I'll just uh, have to go away and live on an island somewhere, because people will be so angry. So I wrote it, and it wasn't finished um, when the first two parts were published. And it just rolled out. I can remember writing the last 20 pages of that book uh, while my kids and my wife were in the other room of this hotel suite in New York. They were watching uh, I think Hollywood Squares and Jeopardy or that Wheel of Fortune thing. And I was in Seventh Heaven. I was in the other room, and I thought this is just... because Mick the story is there, you know. You just have to take away everything that's not the story, and then you're all set, man. You're all set.
1: It's just like Michelangelo taking yeah. a, a rock and finding David inside it. That's right. So I you know, remember.
2: I, I have to say something here about Mick Garris. Mick, you've got really white hair, and I'm responsible for some of that white
1: <laughs> You're the reason I still have hair.
2: Ah, uh, get out. How many times did we work together?
1: Um, it's been a lot and it's hard to keep track because there was first was Sleepwalkers, exactly. then there was The Stand, The Shining, Bag of Bones, Quicksilver Highway. I mean, we worked together really on Sleepwalkers, The Stand, and The Shining. Riding the
2: Bullet. Riding
1: the Bullet, yep. Right the
2: bullet. And, and uh, Desperation.
1: Desperation, yeah. Uh,
2: we've done a lot. The one that almost wiped you out.
1: <laughs> Nothing wiped me out more than the stand did. Five months of shooting was on the road and pretty amazing. Uh, and, right. and it's
2: places where we were. We, we started at Briarvale Falls. I wasn't there. It was dead winter. Right. Uh, uh, Utah. Uh, there was Vegas. We shot for a while downtown Vegas. We shot, uh, who was it? Uh, uh, was it? Was it Will Chamberlain? That's not right.
1: Yes, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Kareem,
2: it was Kareem, yes it was. That was New York, he was the monster shouter. What else did we film?
1: We shot in Pittsburgh for two weeks, we shot in New York, we shot in L.A., Uh, not in L.A., but in California at a military base where we did all of the dead airline uh, jets with uh, Matt Frewer. Um, We shot in six states, 19... let's see, 126 actors speaking parts um, and 99 scripted locations, something like that. It was it was, it was insane. Um, but yeah, that was the second one and it was the first time we really worked together. You were there and you wrote the script as you had for Sleepwalkers. Um, and And so I'm curious about that process. This massive book still to this day probably your most successful book, and adapting that yourself, and you did it very quickly, you did that before I became involved, so what was that process like for you?
2: Well, it's hard to remember actually, but for me, uh, the, the, the whole screenwriting deal has always been in some ways easier than the uh, novel writing thing, because I don't get stuck in people's thoughts and motivations. Everything has to be out where the camera can see it. And you are the perfect person to do that because you're so hip with the visual sense and uh, you were good with the actors, you were terrific with the actors, but the main thing was a Midgar movie or a TV program has its own look. I'd know your work anywhere, and I had written this thing where I talked about uh, um, the Don't Fear the Reaper, and we were seeing the uh, Project Blue installation, and then you went in with your camera, and all these people are dead on the ground, and you used that that handheld camera, and we went right through it, and that became a kind of standard, but years later, when you got to things like The Shield and stuff, where well, you see that handheld and everything, but it had this feeling of real immediacy. You know, the stand, that mini-series, it worked, didn't it?
1: It really did, it was very successful, uh, critically as well as ratings-wise, and, and the fans of the book liked it, because I'm one of them, and it was so important to me to make you proud and to to bring to the screen with respect and love the book that i was so passionate about
2: we we had some difficulties with <laughs> agency, uh and the whole you know uh, network tv usually you, you know the thing is when cable came in it changed the game didn't it in terms of mini-series and in terms of what you could show and what you could see because You know, what I try to tell people is, the thing is, everybody has network TV. Network TV is a guest in your house, and any guest has to behave in a polite way. That is, they're very aware that there are children around, and you can say all you want. Uh, Well, it's up to the parents to monitor the children's, you know, viewing habits, but it's there the same way that the internet is there now with all the porn sites and all that. But once the people got to cable, you know, I keep going back to The Shield. That was a very important show in my view because it told a continuing story and because it broke the mold. I can still remember how I felt at the end of the first episode when Vic Mackey, the purported hero, shot the rat in his dep- <laughs> I said, Oh, I'll tell you what, we're not in Kansas anymore, Toto. This is a new thing. So that was a fantastic thing. And since then, you know, my son Joe has got a series coming out uh, this, this summer called Nosferatu. And I've seen some of the footage cut together. And I'm telling you what, they're not playing games with that. That's, that's, uh, that's balls-to-the-wall scary. So, and we couldn't do all that with the stand. But you know what, Mick? They let us do a lot.
1: We got away with literal murder on that. One of the broadcast standards notes I remember was that you could not show any corpses with their eyes open. Oh, during, right. During the opening credits, though, I chose to steady cam in on all of these characters, one in particular, and I think maybe it's under your credit. The camera goes right in on a dead woman's open eyes, and it was our middle finger to ABC.
2: Yeah, that was good. That was good. And then... Don't forget, we had a, a church full of dead
1: people. <laughs> Including you, you and I were alive together in that scene having cameo roll.
2: Were we? I, I can't remember. Only yeah, we were. Oh, Mick, Cordwood. Yeah, that's right. And then uh, when we worked on The Shining, which was a very important project for me, that was a, a miniseries that everybody told me, well, you can't do that. You know because you will be uh, uh the movie is well, a classic and all that and i'm like fuck kubrick we're gonna and we're gonna do my book you know so that's exactly what we did and we got steven weber uh who actually played the arc from the same guy to the totally crazy guy we got the actual hotel right the overlook hotel. yeah the thing was shot and I got to play the dead band leader.
1: (laughs) You did indeed, even though we did cut out your meltdown.
2: Yeah, we did.
1: did. After six hours of makeup on you and everything.
2: Yeah, but we got a a great shot of coming in. You had to explain to me four times what I was going to do, but we have this thing that comes right up to the camera. It's a very Spielbergian moment. I don't know if you know what I'm talking about or not. And that's... that's my wife's favorite cameo because she says I
1: look like Brett Cuppie. Yeah, you were Cab Calloway, the white Cab <laughs> Calloway through and through. Um, going back to the stand, though, what were the things that came closest to what you had in mind when you were writing the book that you hope were there scenes that stuck out like, wow, this is exactly how I saw it, or, ooh, this one doesn't work at all, this isn't it?
2: No, I got a lot of good memories of that, uh, of looking at it and uh, saying we got most of it. We got, and and I think that probably, you know, I felt that way because I had skin in the game. You know, I wrote the screenplay, and so you lose a little bit of your uh, your godlike perspective with that. But still, uh, the opening was exactly what I had pictured uh, on Project Blue, that cam shot. Uh, That goes through the bodies and everything Uh, that was perfect. Uh, I love that. And uh, I think the smartest thing that we did, and I can't remember if I pushed for this or not, I think I did, was getting Gary Sinise,
1: Mm -hmm. uh,
2: Stuart Redman.
1: Yeah, what that came together, um, an agent at CAA sent me two $5 bills to go see of Mice and Men to see one of his uh, clients in there. And it so happened that Gary Sinise, who was also their client, was who I noticed in the movie. And I thought, he could be a great Stu Redman. Do you think we could get him? And once you and I talked about that, we both went to the agency, who also represented both of us at the time, and asked if we could get it. And Gary Sinise jumped at the chance.
2: Yeah, you know what? The thing that always stuck out in my mind about that was I wrote a line in that when Stewart's being taken uh, by the army uh, to be to, to the Stovington facility. well, he's somewhere else first, but he's being taken into custody because he's in a mirror. Uh They try to uh, blow smoke up his ass about what's going on, and he says, "Country don't mean dumb." Uh, <laughs> I wrote that line, and he, of all the actors that I know of who could have screwed that line, he got it exactly right uh, with a kind of a combination of uh, -of matter-of-factness and you listen to me because this is what I know. And here's the other thing about the stand Mick uh, that I know you remember was Kathy Bates came on and did a cameo. And it's one of her finest performances, and people who haven't seen the Stan miniseries really need to take a look at that. She plays, uh, I think his name is uh, Ray Flowers in the book. Uh, he's a um, uh, a radio guy who continues to broadcast even after he's been told to shut down. And she played it as this chain-smoking, uh, kind of cynical uh, woman who's just like, I know this is going to happen to me, but... You know, I'm going to continue to do this. so. She managed to project that world weariness and cynicism, and at the same time, there was a feeling of uh, of I'm going to do this because I'm a good American and this is what what we're supposed to do. So that was a that was a high point for me that Kathy would come on and do that, and she did it uncredited.
1: Yeah, uncredited. She shot it in four hours. We had less than half a day with her, and she had just won the Oscar for Misery, which was certainly a reason she felt indebted to the, the uh, oeuvre of Stephen King.
2: I'm sure, she paid that debt with interest.
1: Uh, <laughs> yes.
2: And it's funny, you know, uh, the other uncredited performance in that was Ed Harris. Ed Harris played the uh, evil general. And uh, I worked with him early in his career, too, on a, on a picture called Creepshow. Right. Actually, Night work. Riders worked with him on Night Riders. Yeah, yeah.
1: So, when it comes to that, uh, did you, when you were writing the screenplay, did you see it as an opportunity to change something that you might have done differently if you thought of it back when you were writing the book?
2: Mm. No, I don't think so. I, I. You have to keep in mind I was a lot younger then. <laughs> okay and that meant that I had a much higher opinion of myself and my work than I do now. So I'm, I've written a uh, screenplay for Leey's story, and uh, that's you know pretty much current. That's in work now. And uh, I looked at the book and I said to myself, okay, I see everything that's wrong with this book, everything that can be simplified, and I tackled it the way a screenwriter would and did that. But with The Stand, what I remember, Mick, is thinking to myself, we have eight hours to play around in, and it's just such, after having written like Sleepwalkers and a couple of other films, I'm thinking to myself, this is such a luxury to have that that space to tell the tale. I've always felt that way about TV, that the greatest thing that it has to sell is time itself. So, it's, And the other thing was, you have to plan the screenplay. You have to be very disciplined about it and say, well, there are going to be commercial breaks, so you got to build, you got to come down, you got to build a little more. You know how many acts there's going to be. I think at that time it was seven. Now they've got even more ads in there so an even shorter run time for show but not only that but at the end of the first episode you have to go back and say well now we're going to do the next one where we have to start lower in other words it's like a it's it's this beautiful pattern that you have to build up
1: uh-huh. you always referred to it as a novel for television and uh that format was a great one the first screenplay by you i ever read was for Pet Cemetery when I met with Paramount before I'd ever directed anything. I was just screenwriter. Um, and I met with them about that, and it blew me away. And I realized that you were not just a master novelist and, and author, but you really understood the screenwriting format so well. And, you know, screenwriting is basically a blueprint, whereas... Writing a novel. Well, Richard Matheson once said, "Film is external and books are internal," and Mm -hmm. I thought that was kind of profound. And and these, that screenplay showed me that you knew what that was.
2: Well, I there's there's so much to unpack there uh, that I can't that it's hard to know where to begin. I guess the place to begin is on part of a generation that got story in television before I could even read. The first thing that I ever experienced was Bambi in, in a movie theater. So that's the first thing. The second thing is I love film, I love television programs, I love that visual telling media. I love all stories, okay? Whether they come in magazines, books, television, movies, I love story, period. But Matheson is right. You know, movies are exterior, uh, books are interior, but I always refer to it as uh, books are like swimming and, and movies are like skating. That's that's why they're euphoric and giddy and they make us happy because there's that sense of speed and and uh, just this sense of flying. And, and you see it uh, particularly in immersive experiences now like IMAX, which... I sort of like, even though it gives me a headache. So I was, I was raised on that kind of uh, thing, uh, that, that kind of medium. But also, uh, as a student of English, uh, I, I very much took to heart, uh, there's a thing that William Carlos Williams, the poet said, he said, no ideas but in things. No ideas but in things. In other words, The image is the important thing. The fact is the important thing. Um, What you see is what matters. Um, So, for instance, there's a a scene in the book um, where Larry Underwood, in the book The Stand, where Larry Underwood uh, has a fight with his girlfriend. She says, you ain't no nice guy. And uh, she throws something at him, uh, and then she cries. And one of the tears plops on her breast and rolls down to her nipple. And in that drop of tears, he can see a hair growing out of the areola of her nipple. And and I had a teacher read that and say, That's not possible. And I said, It is because I saw it. <laughs> so that's that's it. But you know, in a just in a it, on the level of craftsmanship, uh, I read a couple of books that showed me the format. That's really all you need. You need to know what the format is. And now, anybody who can use, a, you know, a keyboard can write a screenplay because I'm looking right at Final Draft on the strip at the bottom of my computer. So you, you don't have to even, like, use a typewriter to do indents and all that stuff that you probably remember.
1: I remember. Days.
2: Oh, yeah, I'm sure you do. We both do. So the thing was uh, once you learn the format, boom, that's good. And then you have to learn to compress. You have to learn how to compress. And, you know, I did trial screenplays. There was one of uh, Something Wicked This Way Comes. Um, there were screenplays that I did of my own work. Uh, they're all in a drawer, they're all in a drawer, and finally I got so that I felt like I could do something halfway decent. I did a screenplay for The Shining because I had contractual rights to do the first draft. I don't know if anybody ever read it, but uh, that was another learning experience.
1: Well, I know that The Stand was in development for like 15 years with George Romero attached to do it as a movie. Tell me about that process. And Rospo Pallenberg wrote screenplays. Um, were you involved in the process?
2: No. Nope. Um, my idea has always been you're either all the way in or you're all the way out. And you don't, if you're all the way out, then it's not fair to make a, uh, um, a big uh, a deal out of. Um, getting in somebody else's way, eating rice from their rice bowl, if you like. So I was all the way out. The problem with The Stand as a movie is that I don't think that Richard Rubenstein could ever sell it with George at the helm because George was seen as the living dead guy and not as the guy who was capable of putting together an epic. Uh, So that didn't happen. He might have been able to do it with Dino De Laurentiis, there was a lot of interest there. But Dino, he backed away because he saw that Dino would take it over and uh, he would be out of it, Richard, I mean, Richard Rubenstein. So it never really happened, and I never really worried about it, but uh, eventually it happened. But it couldn't have been, when, when did we work on the stand?
1: The Stand was shot in 1993. We worked on it from from January to December and then delivered it uh, at the end of December. Okay,
2: so it really was 15 minutes. Mm.
1: Yeah, well, we did. It's a 25th anniversary in May of of the broadcast. Um, When you write, do you see actors... uh, in those roles when you write either a book or a screenplay, do you visualize actors in those parts or are all of them you in different expressed forms?
2: Neither one. Uh, I don't see actors in the parts, but they're not not—they're not all me. Uh, I suppose because I wrote them, they all have elements of me in them somewhere, but uh, uh, if there's a part of me uh, in Harold Lauder, I hope that that part stays hidden. Although, you know, I think everybody has their their good side. Uh, Even Harold has his his good qualities. I just don't remember what any of them were. The same way that, uh, you know, uh, Molly Ringwald as uh, Fran Goldsmith had her good qualities. She did the best job with that part she possibly could as Molly Ringwald. So, um... I wouldn't say they're me, but I don't see actors in those parts either. When I get done, uh, and we talk about casting, even at that point, it's not not a really interesting part of the process.
1: Well, you were actually involved in the casting process uh, when we were shooting The Stand. And I remember the very first actor we read was Matt Frewer for The Trash Can Man. Do you remember that session? Yeah. He brought something to it.
2: Yeah, he blew it out of the room. He was great. We, he, had the,
1: he had the cigarette lighter. Uh, Randall Flagg has the cigarette lighter and shows him the flame. And Matt's performance was so much richer, suddenly there were tears in his eyes of devotion. And I don't know, I didn't expect that, You wrote it. I don't know if you expected that or not, but it just blew us away.
2: Now, that's a director's take. Uh, I knew that he could do it, and that was the important... He didn't phone it in on that level. But, uh, for instance, uh, once I knew that Gary Sinise was right for the part, and uh, there was no doubt about that in my mind. Uh, I'm trying to think... Oh, well, we cast Glenn Bateman. It was Ray Walston. He was was right for the part. I mean, he was perfect. He was right there. Uh, Some of the other ones, eh, you know, Miguel Ferrer was fantastic. uh, um, Lloyd. Lloyd, yeah, Lloyd. Polarized him, good buddy. Whoop, whoop! But I don't look at it that way. I mean, it's like... uh, when they said to me uh, with uh, uh, Dr. Sleep, Dr. Sleep is done. I haven't seen it yet. It's the sequel to The Shiner. Uh, and they said, well, we want D- Danny Torrance grown up. We want Ewan McGregor to play Danny Torrance. And I'm like, okay. Because <laughs> <laughs> I don't see these people and, and I don't describe them a lot. I don't have a uh, photographic picture of any character in my."
1: What's your favorite part of the process when it does come to filmmaking from one of your stories?
2: Well, looking at it when it's done, you know, the the process itself, the filmmaking process itself, I tell people, look, people say, I want to go to Hollywood. I want to be part of the motion picture business. I got stars in my eyes, man. I I got... It's going to be fantastic. I mean, Spago... Uh, movie stars by the pool. Uh, we're going to make films, man. It's going to be great. But what it really is, and you know this, is a little bit like, okay, it's an amusement park. Everybody's going to have a terrific time, but uh, somebody's got to put those rides together. Somebody's got to do the grunt work. Somebody, and, and so, when you go on a set, you don't see a lot of glamour. You see a lot of people who um, are working hard. Everybody's got a tool belt on. Everybody's carrying duct tape because you can't make movies without duct tape. You know, you've got to have that. And even today, with all the modern stuff, you still got to have duct tape to put it together. So all that. But here's the thing, man. The most exciting part is when the magic happens. Um, I remember, you know, we did Creep Show. And I was on set most of the time for that because I actually, uh, well, some people would call it acting. I would just call it, you know, what I did at that time. But we had we had the last segment of that was called something uh, was called "They're Creeping Up on You," uh, and it was E.G. Marshall, who had this thing about bugs, and the last scene of my screenplay had him dead on the floor, presumably from a heart attack because there's no bugs in the apartment anymore, and then all at once, bugs spew from his mouth a flood of bugs, and uh, they they could only do it once. They could only do it once, and they had uh, a Tom Savini um, life mask of E.G. Marshall. You want to hear the story about the life mask?
1: Oh, do I ever.
2: Well, I was fairly uh, claustrophobic about it. I had to have it done for Geordie Verrill. And they would put all this plaster and stuff all over your latex. And you'd wait for it to dry and you had something to breathe through while you waited for it because it took a while. And when E.G. Marshall came in, I knew him from the Defenders and everything and this distinguished actor and everything, and I thought, oh, he's not going to do this. He sat down, and he said, whenever I raise my finger like this, tip a little bourbon down that straw that's in my mouth. And that's what they did, and he was fine. He just sat there, and he took it. So he got his life mask made, and the dummy was there, and the life mask was hooked up to a hose, a big, like a HVAC hose, you know, heating and ventilation. And there was a fan and there was a huge box of cockroaches, Costa Rican cockroaches, they were gigantic. And we had this one chance, the idea was, the fan was gonna start, George was gonna call action Savini was going to lift up the front of the box with the cockroaches in it. And in theory, which we never tried, the cockroaches were going to be blown down the tube and they were going to spurt out of E.G. Marshall's mouth. And we all stood around knowing well we were all brushing our arms and everybody had their legs tied up because the cockroaches got out. They were everywhere. Cockroaches were everywhere. So it worked. And it worked... Beautifully, better than anybody could have expected. The mouth opened, the cockroaches boiled out of E.G. Marshall's mouth, and George called cut, and the whole place erupted in applause. And that's that's what you do the job for, you know, because every now and then something like that happens.
1: Well, you talk about the joy and the hard work of doing a film. I have never seen anybody enjoy being on a set as much as you do. It's like this, and maybe it was because of The Stand and The Shining, these are books that were so close to you and important to you and to the readers as well, bringing them to life. But I remember one scene in particular where we're out on a highway in the middle of Utah and with uh, uh, Adam Stork playing Larry Underwood and we all had guitars and we're all singing The Eve of Destruction. (laughs) And it was it was an amazing time, but uh, you seem to to be like a kid with a train set when you're on a set of, of a film based on, on your work.
2: Well, what can I say, Mick? I bring the fun. <laughs> so the thing is, you have to try to enjoy it, and everybody has memories like uh there's two things. There's the show, which is what the people come and pay their money to see, and then there is the people who work on the show, and they have their own memories of the process. Uh, I'll never forget, you know, 2 o'clock in the morning, uh, doing Maximum Overdrive in the Dixie Boy Diner, which is a real diner we actually built. It was loaded with explosives, and I'm off the top of a crane. The wind is blowing, and the thing's rocking from side to side. I get to call action and the whole place blew up and we blew out windows four miles away. And that was a great moment. You don't get to do that in real life very often.
1: Do you have the desire to direct again? You did Maximum Overdrive and I would love to see it happen because you seem to have such a good understanding of film.
2: I did a bad job with um, Maximum Overdrive because I I was not able to study Film making, the way that I've been able to study screenwriting, so that I had some ideas about what to do, but I didn't have the advantage of having been to a film school or worked uh, with films, you know, at a lesser level, so that I could see the process. You know, you see uh, uh, actors who will be in uh, uh, a lot of uh, episodes of a show. And then you'll see their credit is director. Well, at that point, they know pretty well what to do because they could direct the things themselves, so it's normal that eventually they would. But with maximum overdrive, um, first of all, it was a little bit tough because the film crew didn't speak English. They were all Italian. We had one guy who was supposed to translate, but he wasn't very good at it either. So the guy who taught me the most, God bless his heart, was Pat Hingle. Pat Hingle was the guy who taught me, okay, what we're going to do is a master and two cutaways. And he was the one who explained to me about, you're going to shoot over the shoulder, you get the perspective, and then you're going to shoot the, uh, you're going do a turnaround, and you're going to do the other one, and then you're going to do the master, and, and whatever uh, thing. And he said to me, and by the way, you'll get more out of the actors when they aren't close than you will on the master. And uh, he was also the one who... who uh, who taught me? He had one scene in his office. Uh, he played the, the the Dixie Boys owner, um, and it was a scene where we had a track. Okay, and the camera is on a track, and he was talking to his minion, um, this this young uh, chubby guy, and the camera is moving along the track with Pat. And Pat had a lot to say about the guns that were and where they were and everything. It was a lot of basic exposition. And he did a pretty good job, but he flopped about halfway through. And I was ready to uh, take it all the way back to the beginning of the track. And he said, no, no, you can just do a pickup. And I said, what's that? And he said, well, you're going to have cutaways to the other actor, right? I said, yeah. He said, so we'll do a pickup, we'll move back a little bit, and I'll pick it up from the middle of the thing. And I went, oh, my God, you can do that? So that was, like, uh, uh, part of it. Um,
1: Well, learning the language of making movies uh, that you edit, you can do pieces of time, as Peter Bogdanovich calls it.
2: Oh, yeah, there are a lot of things you can do. Uh, One of the great things about movies is nobody ever has to do the dishes. Because you cut away from that, and you just go to the living room. Uh, when Dad comes in with, you know, drying his hands on a dish towel. Or something. That's the great thing about movies: there are no chores. Nobody ever has to take a shit. Nobody ever has to pee. It's, it's, well, it's every now and then nowadays somebody does have. To pee. It's in fact, in Maximum Overdrive, there is a guy taking a shit. He Seems he's in one of the stalls as he's talking.
1: Also, well, Pat Hengel was in The Shining as well, our miniseries version, and was amazing in it. And at first, he was very grumpy. He came out twice for the shoot. And then I think he went home and saw The Stand and came back and suddenly couldn't have been nicer. He loved The Stand so much. I think it opened his eyes up to what we were trying to do.
2: I thought he was. I thought he was a great guy, and I didn't learn a lot. So in answer to your question, going back to it, would I do it again? Uh, yes, I would. Uh, with what I know now, I think that I could do uh, a fairly adequate job. But on the other hand, I'm really busy, and I'm getting old, so probably.
1: Well, there was a time where we came close to you directing and me producing Gerald's Game, which would have been amazing. But Mike Flanagan did a great job. You couldn't. Have he did. Done he it, did. Um, well, speaking of new projects, The Stand is going to be done, again, as a 10-hour mini miniseries. Um, Josh Boone has been attached to doing a new version of The Stand, first as two feature films. And uh, I know that uh, you've read a lot of what he's done for this. And how do you feel about multiple interpretations? Is it like... You can do Shakespeare on the stage a thousand different ways. Is that how you feel about this?
2: That's exactly how I feel about it. You can do Shakespeare on the stage a thousand different ways. You can do The Stand a thousand different ways. I uh, like Josh Boone's work, uh, I actually worked with him on his first feature. I, I couldn't act in it, which is what he wanted me to do, so it had to be an audio thing. Um, and then he did uh, The Fall in Our Stars, which I thought... Showed his grasp of, of the medium. I, I like him a lot, and I like his his uh, his reach, his ambition for it. But really, the thing I'm most excited about is, first of all, we've got two more hours to tell the story, and second, we're free of all those things that held us back with the stand. That is to say, not only is the budget bigger, even by if you you know equalize the two eras uh we're we're free to uh in terms of language and in terms of violence in a way that we weren't uh, with the original stand and so cbs is pretty much cbs all access would really like this to work i think and they're they put a lot of muscle behind it so i'm hopeful but it's early days yet so um the casting isn't complete uh my other son, Owen, has written uh, uh, some of the scripts, and they're terrific, so uh, it's good.
1: Music plays an important part in your books and in the films and television, the screenplays. You, you wrote Don't Fear the Reaper into the opening sequence of the stand screenplay. Uh, we used the Crowded House song. That um,
2: that, too. that was a beautiful thing. That was your idea.
1: Yeah, you had written in the Beach Boys Fun, Fun, Fun. Mm-hmm. And we did Don't Dream It's Over. Uh, sort of an elegy.
2: Yeah. yeah. Kind of, well, my, my way of doing it was kind of counterintuitive, you know, to try to make people think, well, oh, we've lost all that fun. But the Crowded House thing beautiful. Beautiful thing.
1: Well, music being so important to you, tell me a little bit about Snuffy Walden, because I originally was considering a Copelandesque kind of orchestral score. And then you and I talked, and you you brought up the idea of Snuffy and a guitar, bluesy, roots bass sound. I
2: wanted it to be blue-jeans music. I can remember saying that to you several times. It's got to be, you know, a quiet soundtrack. And I knew Snuffy's work from maybe from the Waltons, I'd have to look him up, look him up on the International Movie Database, but uh, he knew what it was about right away, and he was able to put it together, and the soundtrack album for that is great, and you snuck it in anyway. When you got to Boulder, you had to have some music that was kind of more like traditional movie music.
1: Well, Copeland well, for me, this was also an opportunity The stand for me is an opportunity to be truly patriotic, not a flag-waving, right-wing, you know, kind
2: of flag-waving. Yes. (laughs) Yes.
1: (laughs) Uh, But to to be a patriot and go back to what the foundation of America was really about, because we were starting over and trying to do it as a democracy. Is that something that you intended when you were writing the book? Sure.
2: Yeah, I think uh, I saw it as a uh, um, as a real conflict between people who wanted to reinstate democracy and people who were basically uh, agreeing to live under the thumb of the, the boot of a dictator. Uh, and the scene that always made it the clearest to me was uh, when these guys, uh, unarmed guys from Boulder, are walking up the turnpike and they meet the uh, the armed uh, force from uh las vegas you know and uh one of them you know uh uh, glenn bateman says some things that aren't exactly happy birthday and they hit him in the gut and uh drive him to his knees and and uh yeah he says this is the way your society is going to be and he shames him a little bit so that was a good moment that was a good moment so yeah it was one again it was uh, the two forces in total um, in total uh, conflict, and by calling Randall flag flag, it was one of the ways that I wanted to say that at that time I thought uh, there was a lot of uh, that fascist, fascistic element in the government, in the people that were governing us, um, and that makes it a really good thing, a really good time for the stand to come back, because this feels like a fascist regime to me too,
1: so. Do you intentionally write metaphor? I know horror is probably one of the best media in which to use metaphor, social, political, whatever. Is that something that you do intentionally, or is it something you can't avoid doing because you're an artist?
2: The story tells you what the theme is. Uh, I've always felt that. And at some point in the writing of something, you start to realize what it is you're writing about. Um, I wrote a book... uh, It was published, uh, I think, two years ago, called The Outsider. And uh, at some point, you know, what I I get off on, Mick, is this story, I had the idea for this story. I said, this is dynamite. I can't wait to write this and see what happens in this story. Because I'm reading it at the same time that I'm writing it. And I knew what the story was, and it goes along, and it tells itself the way my stories do. uh, A little bit like following breadcrumbs into the deepest, darkest part of the forest. And at some point in that story, I said to myself, what I'm really writing about here is the nature of belief and how people will refuse to believe certain things if it runs totally counter to the way that they perceive the world, you know? So I finished the script, the the manuscript, and I put it aside, and three or four weeks later or whatever it was, that I started to work on it again, you know, I started to emphasize those things, those things. Not not to try to hit it over the head and put it on the nose or something. Uh, Because I want to write stories. I don't want to write, you know, political pamphlets. So it just, this stuff comes out. And with the stand, there's an awful lot of stuff in there that reflects the temper of the times, the lying, the distrust of government. So.
1: Who were your biggest influences when you were reading before you started writing?
2: Matheson was the biggest one, Richard Matheson. I mean, I read
1: Lovecraft,
2: uh, struggled my way through it, and there were some of the stories that really, you know, lit a fire. Uh, Pickman's Model was one. The Colorado Space was another one. Uh, Poe never really did it for me. Uh, I loved all the tales
1: from the Crypt, uh, uh, horror mags, the comics. Uh, uh, Paul the EC was- comics. <laughs> Well, one of the things that Matheson did that seems to be a hallmark of your work as well is he brought horror home. Uh, It was not in Carpathian Mountains. It was not in castles. It was not 200 years of a legend. It was happening in your neighborhood right now.
2: It was happening in suburbs of Los Angeles. You know, little tract houses and stuff. Uh, That novel uh, I Am Legend uh, could be in almost any suburban neighborhood, you know, uh, Ben Cortman saying, Neville, come out. Uh, you can see that and that immediately or you take the shrinking man uh, when Scott Carey gets dumped into the cellar. We know what all those things are. We understand, you know, he's fighting with a pin. Uh, it, the familiarity of the objects and the surroundings is like steroids for the imagination.
1: What do you think you would do if you had not been able to make a career as a writer?
2: Oh, I would probably teach school until I drank myself to death.
1: <laughs> what better ending than that? <laughs> Steve, Steve, thank you so much for taking part in this. I've been really eager to talk to you on the show and, and uh, appreciate it all.
2: Absolutely, and tell me when it's, I'll, I'll fire it up. All right. I'll blush at all the things that I said that were inarticulate, but thank you, man.
1: <laughs> there weren't any of those. Thanks a lot, Steve, and I hope to see you very, very soon, and happy 25th anniversary.
2: Thanks. God bless you, and God bless Cynthia, and God bless the staff.
1: If you're enjoying Postmortem, it would be a great, great favor to us for you to rate and review and subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Uh, You can access all of my video interviews and behind-the-scenes documentaries, things like that, at MickGarrisInterviews.com. Reach us on Twitter at PostMortemMG and on Instagram on PostMortemGram. Thanks a lot for listening.
2: Thanks for listening to PostMortem with Mick Garris. Download
1: new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes.